Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. We see you. You're a colleague. You're a partner. You're a friend. You're always here to support your family and your community. Now there's a school ready to support you. National University offers tuition discounts for military spouses and free tutoring, so you get the support you need to succeed. National University, supporting the whole you. We see you. You're a colleague. You're a partner. You're a friend. You're always here to support your family and your community. Now there's a school ready to support you. National University offers tuition discounts for military spouses and free tutoring, so you get the support you need to succeed. National University, supporting the whole you. Nice microphones and, and then a general uh, ambient microphone. You mix them together. And well, we don't necessarily mix them together, although that is a good idea. The reason that we have this backup microphone is um, you only have to have one podcast not get recorded mm-hmm. to be extra paranoid. Well, we did the aristocrats. Yes. Prevens mm-hmm. went to uh, England to do a few of the recordings. Yeah. And he um, had Terry Gilliam. And I said to Provenza, bring headphones with you and plug them in so that you're sure you're getting it. Oh, no. And Provenza said, I hate carrying headphones with me. I said, bring, bring headphones with you. And we argued a little bit. He then went to Terry Gilliam, and Terry Gilliam went to a chalkboard and drew the aristocrats' cartoon while explaining it oh. in a really, really wonderful thing. And Provenza had taken his consumer camera, which is what we shot it with. We shot it with, we had totally, total of eight. I already don't like where this is going. And he had a microphone that went to a lav that Terry Gilliam was wearing. And he plugged the pack that picked up that part of the way into the jack. No! So it turned off the internal mic. Oh, no! But did not connect the mic pack. No. <laughs> and he then, uh, uh, Terry Gilliam did a half an hour, and then Prevenz uh, left me a message that it was the best we had from the movie. And then he went back to his hotel and realized he had no sound whatsoever. And he came to Vegas, and there was another friend with us when Prevenz told me. And the friend said, which I like, the friend said, if your glance had moved from Prevence to me for even a second, it would have killed me. <laughs> he said, I've never seen such pure hate. Well, and it's also the thing of like, this is what we argued about. Right. right. So he said, uh, in my New England way, I never yelled at Prevenza. I never said, told you so. I just said, uh, no way to fix it. And Prevence said, no, we didn't record it. And Prevence, which I love the most, is Prevence called Terry Gilliam and explained the whole situation to him. 
And Gilliam said, I, I understand completely. That kind of stuff happens. It's really, really horrible. It happened with me when I was shooting Brazil. I lost a whole reel. It's a terrible, horrible thing. I understand completely. And Prevent said, so you'll do it again? And he said, no, absolutely not. <laughs> I said, I understood. <laughs> but no, fuck you and your movie. I'm not doing it so again. So you basically have this great silent film of Terry Gilliam doing a chalkboard drawing of aristocrats. And we tried... Subtitles. We tried looping. We tried Prevenza saying, I fucked this up, and this is what he was saying, the kind of thing, and none of them were funny, and none of them were good. And so what, what you maybe needed was someone like... If you uh, come up with a solution right now, I do, I'll, I'll strangle you. Oh, okay. No, I do have a solution. Billy West? No, not Billy West, although that is a good solution. The solution is you get someone like uh, Terry Jones or Michael Palin to go, oh, all right, I just did. Exactly. Like you just basically do a Python voiceover yeah. of Terry Gilliam drawing a thing. We did so try many things, and none of them were just funny. Because of the way it's cut, you don't have time to do a bit within the bit. You know what I mean? Right. The way the aristocrats was put together was not four-minute hunks of each person. So let's this is a great place to start this, okay? Because this <laughs> is this is basically uh, something something shitty happened. That no one, it was just an accident, and it, it was a speed bump in the life of this film, which, you know, I'm sure you've played out, oh, it would have been even a hundred times better with this thing. <laughs> and like, so, do you, uh, uh, do you say, well... That's just the way it is, and we just have to live with it. Or is your is your point of view more stoic, where it's like these things happen, and we we move forward from here and try to figure out how to turn these into minuses you, into pluses, or is it like well, it just wasn't meant to be. be? You could not be uh, more stoic than me. Yeah, I figured. And you also could not be. Uh, you know, I've done these shows, these uh, Dancing with the Stars bullshit shows. Yeah, Celebrity Apprentice. And the standard thing that everybody on those shows says is, "I'm a perfectionist." Right. And they say that, first of all, they don't know what the word means. And then they're saying because they think that's a way to self-aggrandize themselves. Right. Um, whereas actually it's a it's a completely stifling position to be in. Right. And they're not really using it correctly. If they the way they use it wrong is awful, and if they were using it correctly, it would be awful. But I I like to get things done, mm -hmm. and I will cut corners, any corners necessary. <laughs> to get. We had a great thing happen. Uh, we're working on this new bit in our show. We're trying to get a lot of new bits in our show because um, Fool Us is coming up. Right. We have to have, a, like, 90 minutes of brand-new material. So we're running a lot of stuff, and we put it in the show, you know. And um, we try to, at first, hammock it between strong bits. And of course. Stuff yeah, as you do. Yeah. But um, so this was the rehearsal. We finished running through this bit. We're doing VR with Randy Pitchford from Gearbox. Mm -hmm. It's a full B VR bit with us having avatars of us and we're interacting live with the stuff on the screen. Very, very complicated. And we finished. One of the crew guys that we trust very much, Zeke, was sitting there. And we finished it. And uh, Zeke said, I, I, I don't know if there's a trick there. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on, but I'm not sure that my feeling would be that I'd seen a trick. It might be nothing. And we don't really have jokes in place. I, it, it, there's some parts where they're splashy, but I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. And then Johnny Thompson, who's our mentor, uh, Johnny's in his 80s and is considered by, I think, everybody to be the greatest mind in all of magic, um, who has been working with us for 20 years, works with us in everything, he's at every meeting, everything. He's the final judge on Fool Us. He mm -hmm. decides whether people have, we've been fooled or not. And uh, Johnny sat there and went, ah, boys, he calls us boys, we're both over 60. <laughs> he, he's over 80. He so can call works. us boys. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, he said, uh, boys, I, I'm not sure there's, there's magic here. I'm not sure. Uh, I think you may have, as we've been working on this over the, over the weeks, you, you may have just lost your grip on where the magic is. I'm, I'm not really sure. I'm, I'm not, uh, it, it, doesn't really, it doesn't seem to land for me. At which point there was a very long pause. The teller said, uh, want to put it in tonight? I said, sure. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> so, so that is that is that is the penalty. And did it work? Yeah, yeah. It went over. It went over pretty well. It did not kill. I mean, there's there's not the kind of punchline you'd get if you were doing a situation comedy. Right. It wasn't like the best bit in the show. Right. And it didn't wasn't a disaster. The audience went okay. Yeah. There's, there's some magic there. Right. Not as much as Johnny wanted. <laughs> but did you, do you, and then, so do you feel like, oh, do we go back and fuck with it? Or do you just feel like, oh, no, no, we, for now? we, uh, we, you know, we try to, um, get things in the show pretty early and then you think about them all the time and you just, since you're going to do it every night, I mean, there's nothing like, and so few people get to do it. You know, um, uh, we've done... 12,000 shows? Jesus Christ. I mean, we've done more than the uh, the Beatles, the Stones, Dylan, uh, all together mm -hmm. by a factor of five. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we have spent, you know, uh, you talk about the 10,000 hours. Right. We, we've spent, you know, together on stage 30,000 hours. Right. Um, and uh, we get to do stuff. That no, and th th there's. I think this is just true. George Burns started in show business when he was like eight, and by his um, his assessment, and I think everybody else's. I don't think there's any false modesty here. He sucked until <laughs> he was thirty. I mean, really had no skills at all and just persevered. Right. And then he met Gracie Allen, and then by the time he was sixty. He was fabulous. Figured it out. And you know, on um, when you want to be a pilot, and I know you do. Of course. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> when you want to be a pilot, all they care about is flight hours. That's right. They don't ask you, are you flying many storms? Yeah. They don't say, you know, what, what are your goals? Oh, I had this future? one really great. This flight sucks, but you should have seen the flight yesterday. <laughs> that one was great. They just say, how many hours have you sat in the cockpit while this plane is in the air? Well, you know, again, last night it was how a bringer flight. How many hours have there. you sat? Shit. In the, <laughs> how many hours? I don't know. Five, six. Okay, uh, I don't you know. don't want you. Oh, come on. <laughs> I want, come on. I was good. Flight time really matters. It really does. So, um. And Teller and I, in, in an age of television and podcasts and all that other stuff, you eat material. And uh, it's what Warhol, I'm not going to quote him exactly, but Warhol said this wonderful thing where he said, if they're going to do pretty much the same situation comedy every week, why don't they do the exact same ones so they can get good at it? <laughs> I mean, my, the thing I think about all the time, can you imagine the first show of Saturday Night Live? Right. Okay. I, yeah. The Carlin, right? It was Hosted Carlin. by Carlin. Yeah. And Belushi and that whole gang. Imagine if they had done that 150 times. Right. Imagine how that show would be. Right. Because you develop different skills. It's a different skill learning to be Conan. Right. Than learning to be George Burns. Right. I know, well, that's a bad example because he also did TV. But I mean, someone who really did a guy who worked carnies or fairs and bangs out the same shit. So Teller and I have the advantage of allowing our subconscious to process some of the stuff. Mm -hmm. When you're working um, on a one-shot thing, if you're working in movies or television, um, everything needs to be verbal and intellectual. Mm -hmm. If you and I are in a room saying, we're going to go, we're going to do this half hour, this way it's going to go, and there's going to be a moment here that you can't describe, it's not going to get in the show. Mm -hmm. There's no way it's going to get on the show. If you go, man, there's this feeling I got that I can get from this part to this part. I'm not sure what I'm going to say, and I'm not sure what the point's going to be, but I really have this feeling I can get there. I'm going to go, well, no. Right. <laughs> We're going to be in front of cameras. We can't wait for you to figure it out. That's different in a live show. Yeah. In a live show, I can say to Teller, I'll get us there. And he'll go, Okay. And that's the entire discussion. And he doesn't even know till he's on stage, I'm going to get there. And then two months later, that's an absolute script that you can bang out. We can send the video to the foolish people. They can see it, everything else. And no one ever has to say, how did you end up writing that section? Right, well, right, Ben right. had a feeling, and he went out for four, <laughs> for four or five nights. It was bad. 
And then for ten nights, it was okay. Well, that's why that's why comedy in particular is so tricky to shoot because it's such a. I mean, listen, I love. I've I've been, I was heavily influenced by albums and every stand-up special in the '80s, and continue to watch comedy all the time. I'm not a hundred percent sure that comedy. In the that's okay. I'm not a hundred percent sure that comedy, the way that we see it in like specials or whatever, was necessarily meant to be televised. Like, there's something about the live experience, and especially what can happen is performers get so accustomed to performing for their own audiences. But then, and and when you're in the live show, you're caught up in the energy and you're in it, and it's you know, it's like you're you're just part of this little community for an hour and a half. But it can be difficult to shoot because if you're separated from that, you're not part of that energy and part of the experience and it's not what you said if all the jokes aren't, you know, if you're not getting the kind of forgiveness energy of being in the live show, the watching a special on television can be vastly different than actually having been there. But there's a lot of studies that actually say that touching people changes everything. You put a thousand people in in a standing up in a crowd where they're touching shoulders. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter very much whether it's uh, the Pope or Jay-Z. There is a different feeling that you get. Human beings react to that. There's mm-hmm. evolutionary reasons for that. So just being in a room instead of in your living room, I mean, this is the thing that, um, well, uh, going back to the aristocrats, it was an issue that we were really dealing with. Because aristocrats was early enough, it was you know 2005 or something, that people would still have a chance of watching the theater. You pretty much let that go now. Mm-hmm. Nothing's watched in the theater anymore. But if you watch the Marx Brothers movies, which are brilliant, uh, you watch uh, Duck Soup or Animal Crackers, after every gag, there's this space where they were expecting a theater audience to laugh. Mm-hmm. And now you don't do that. And Woody Allen, who's written about this, said that he didn't know what he was editing for at the turn of the century. You just don't know what you're editing for. And by editing for a theater and the aristocrats, it's an entirely different experience for people who watched it on a video and people who saw it at Sundance with a sold-out crowd. Right. And at Sundance with a sold-out crowd, you're missing the beginning of every single uh, next section. Because people are laughing. Just They laugh over it. You don't hear it. It's gone. Right. And there's some places that just aren't funny because you didn't hear the setup. That's right. They're just right over it and done. But we were going back and forth going, well... Who are we doing this for? Right. And on top of that, you've got this deep context that um, I think we have to. uh, It's going to be interesting to see how we learn about this, you know, because I've been making this argument really since the 80s. People would say this is back when Stern wasn't uh, anodyne, you mm-hmm. know, when, when Stern actually was a little bit edgy and people had people had opinions on Stern. I mean, I don't even know if you're old enough to know that, but Stern used to be a shock jock. Right. He wasn't, a, you know, a television guy. Right. And uh, when Stern was shocking, people would pull out clips and I would say, well, that's out of context. And they would say, well, we're going to, we'll play the whole show. And I'd say that's still out of context. Because you have to listen to the show. (laughs) The context is like when your uncle's at Thanksgiving and he says something insane, but you've known your uncle for your whole life. Right. And there's a certain kind of uh, depth of that understanding. And when you listen to someone like Stern, someone who's filling up a huge amount of space and is saying a lot of stuff... Uh, you have to understand that you can almost prove anything about mm-hmm. Stern. You could prove socialist. <laughs> right. You could prove Ayn Rand. You could prove anything from Stern because people are really complicated. Right. And Stern was a wonderful example because Stern would talk about someone he loved having cancer and then do a fart joke. Right. And do them within the space of 30 seconds, which is what people do. That's right. Everybody in the world does it. And we're now reaching a part with Twitter where Twitter allows us no context whatsoever. Twitter is the the elimination of context. And you've got this, you know, couple sentences said by somebody who we all believe. And I'm not I'm not pointing fingers at other people. Everybody, you and me, believe are the totality of that person's thinking <laughs> when we see it, you know? <laughs> well everyone always makes exceptions for themselves. Oh well I you know I mean I, I you know it's it's the same thing about like how, you know, if um Whatever it's like, you you find out uh, 
someone, you know, cheated on their taxes and you're like, well, that fucking piece of shit. And then you cheat on your taxes. Someone's like, didn't you do the same thing? Well, I mean, but you know, it's me. I mean, it's different. Well, the, well, the, the answer is it's different because it's me. The way the the way the sh- some uh, clinical uh, brain people describe this is people tend to think that what other people do is based on their personality. And what you do yourself is based on the situation. Mm-hmm. So it's situational for yourself and, and personality for other people. That's really And it's, it's really a useful way to look at it because it's situational for them, too. Well, know? and it's just it's, it's at least thinking about it that way should, should you know, it's, it's, it's really just about trying to infuse as much uh, empathy and humanity back into the culture. That, but, you know, know I, was one of the, I was one of the people who in the, in the early 90s, you know, uh, at MIT and, and speaking with people all over, I was a real futurist, you know, and I talked about forever how the Internet was going to be a, a egalitarian democratization of, of everything. It was going to be really wonderful to everybody have their voice and having all the information out there and uh, was completely blindsided to see how... Um, how that huge amount of information, you know, um, when uh, John Lennon was uh, going around uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, and um, I was, you know, complete fan of John Lennon. I was one of the people that liked John Lennon with Yoko mm-hmm. more than John Lennon with Paul McCartney. <laughs> I thought that was the wimpy stuff. The, the ballsy stuff was all with Yoko, which I still believe. I still believe John's stuff after the Beatles is better. But uh, for my taste, uh, goofier, nuttier, crazier, braver. And um, there was a, a cartoonist, Al Cap, who did like Little Abner, you know, and as square as a guy could be. And there's an interview that Al Cap does with John Lennon uh, in 69 when he and Yoko are in bed doing bed piece and all of that. And it's interesting, uh, when I watched that at 14, you know, to me, um, Al Cap couldn't have been more of a dick and John <laughs> Lennon was a hero. And then you see it uh, later and you just go, oh, John's crazy and high and stupid. And Al Cap is just kind of sensible, asking reasonable questions. <laughs> and Al Cap also completely gets it. I mean, it's not like he's left out. I just couldn't see in the interview that he was also understanding, going, yeah, yeah, that's fine, but... But that's an interesting point that you bring up about, and it's and, and something that I've been wanting to talk to you about, but this kind of romantic idea that people have of genius... Oh yeah, well, I, no no one hates genius more than me. Uh, but what what Al Cap says is he says John Lennon sings "Power to the People," "Power to the People," "Power to the People." That was a song he had. "Power right. to the People," right on. And Al Cap points out if you actually give. Power to the people of the United States. John Lennon will be locked up and sent back to England. <laughs> and I'm afraid that's what we're seeing with Trump. I mean, we're seeing that um, the Constitution is supposed to protect this stuff. And if you actually let a mob mentality take over, they won't necessarily do the most compassionate thing. Well, I don't, I but mean, yes, the genius thing. But wait, I'm going to start coming about that because I don't even think that has anything to do with doesn't have anything to do with politics. I think those are separate issues. What's happening is that the internet is it's just this idea of like absolute power corrupts absolutely and right now the internet has absolute power and it is drunk and corrupted by its own power and it is basically you know the internet is just set on destroy to destroy you know like just because it's all we have to do is learn (laughs) and we we do we We do, do we do we do we do but it's just that you know when when you but in this in our kind of upvote culture where it's kind of more important to get likes than to have conversations and you know to achieve significance through like fast hot takes on stuff as opposed to like well thought out you know well reasoned you know exchanges of ideas you know that's that's just sort of the, the thing. We, we can we, we'll get sick of it <laughs> no I really believe that see you I am. Uh, a pathological optimist. I love that about you. I mean, I, I, and you know, all you've got to do is look at the numbers and hunger and violence are going away. Mm -hmm. Shut up. There's nothing else we care about. (laughs) You know, yeah. If people are a little mean in tweets, I can take that if there are uh, actually, which there are in the past 10 years, half as many people starving. Right. Half as many. 
motherfucker. That's all I care about. <laughs> you know, the fact that uh, the United States is not doing great now, but Africa, India are doing fabulously. They're getting less people starving. I'm talking about they're going from $1 a day to $2 a day, which is, that's a difference in shoes. That's clean water. That's education. 90% of girls on this planet now are going to school. You know, it was 20% in my lifetime. So you, so you think it's just all part of the it, – because there are definitely – I don't mean to just be negative about it. I, just, I, I agree try. with you. No, try. Try. It's easy. It's easy to be negative. No, try. I'll take you down. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I'm on your don't side. Be negative. <laughs> no, Go I don't want to be. It's poisonous. I don't want to be negative. It's fucking poison. It's, uh, but you're right. In, in as much as that I do believe that the internet is corrupted by um, – you know, it's sort of an unreasonable tendency toward destruction. You're right. I mean, the power that it has had over connecting our culture and up and and raising up voices and 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 connecting people. But you're not the only one. Uh, we aren't the only ones getting sick of that. That's my only point. Right. Uh, I believe that everyone is getting sick of it. But I, I, and pretty soon you're going to just kind of go, people are going to just kind of go, ah, Twitter, fuck. <laughs> the uh, court will note that uh, Mr. T- uh, Mr. Gillette uh, did the hand mo- the jerking off hand motion. But um, uh, uh, this idea of genius, though, is really interesting to oh, me because we, we, we are obsessed with the romantic idea of like, oh, there's just genius. 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 Mozart is a word that's only used by people as an excuse to be lazy. <laughs> and, or after they died. This is amazing. You just say, so-and-so is a genius, so I don't have to work that hard. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, everybody that we see as genius now is an absolute plodding, hardworking motherfucker. Right. And the amazing thing is that the Dylan, more blood, more tracks. Mm-hmm. What I had believed, uh, I am a Dylan nut, maybe... Maybe crossing over into dangerous to my life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I care a lot about Bob Dylan. <laughs> now the story was, blood on the tracks, that Bob Dylan uh, was having trouble with his wife. Divorce was coming. He took his guitar. He went into a studio. He poured his heart out. He sang blood on the tracks. It was the most honest appraisal of romance. Uh, he poured it out. It was blood. Porn onto the tracks. He then listened to it. It was a little bit too intense. He talked to his brother. He went and he got a different band. He calmed it down a little bit, but it was pure genius. And that just popped full blown. And then there were rumors that there was a notebook that Bob Dylan had been working on, on Blood on the Tracks. And then there were weird things he said in interviews like, yeah, yeah, I was going through a divorce, but I was also reading a lot of Chekhov. And then there's other interviews where he's taking painting lessons and he's discussing with the, uh, his teacher time and compressing time, seeing time from different angles. Then it turns out there are three notebooks and the three notebooks are tiny writing every single song and every word of every song crossed out, redone, crossed out, redone, crossed out, redone. And then the takes come out and he didn't go in the studio and pour out his heart. He went to the studio and banged through the same motherfucking songs 40 <laughs> times, trying to find maybe, uh, maybe uh, and he, at one point, this man who's just a genius pouring out his heart goes uh, uh, it's really hard to, uh, there's so much going on at once it, it's like life or something <laughs> <laughs> but know, the original story is better for people. And then Mick Jagger shows up and goes, oh, I'll about you play some slide guitar. Oh and you realize that Mick Jagger is just there. I'm, I'm working on something, Mick. Shut up. Go <laughs> go, go party with someone else. <laughs> but, uh, and, you know, Vermeer, I, uh, we, we did that movie, Tim's Vermeer, mm-hmm. where uh, Vermeer, who is always seen as someone who, full-blown from the mind of Zeus, just starts writing. And one of the most profound, you know, I'm from a stupid little town. I never met anybody in show business, you know. And probably the moment that I thought I could maybe go into the arts was uh, Bootlegs came out. And um, I had always thought, and I really believe this, it's so hard to look back with the information I have now, but I really believed that the Beatles went to George Martin 
with Sergeant Peppers in their head and said, here's where we need the kazoo. Here's where we need the piccolo trumpet. Here's the arrangement we need here. Here's where they're going to take a little bit of, you know, King Lear and put it in the background. Here's where we're going to do this. We're all set to go. And then the musicians and George Martin worked hard to create what was in their head clearly. And then when I was whatever I would have been then, 14 or 15, in my local record shop, they got bootlegs in. And one of the bootlegs was called Come Back. K-U-M-B-A-C-K, take off on Get Back. And it was uh, Beatle Outtakes. And then I heard Paul McCartney singing out of tune, not being able to find the first note. And then I heard George Harrison doing a solo on Let It Be that was completely inappropriate. (laughs) Absolutely blew the whole mood. And then I heard George Harrison and John Lennon arguing. Uh, that's not, that's not, uh, frustrated, tired. And I heard these half-written lyrics that didn't sing and didn't make sense and didn't land. I went, wait a minute. They're working on shit. I could do that. <laughs> I can work on stuff. You basically saw the magician b- backstage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I can work on stuff. Oh, the bird just hides in there? Yeah. Oh, fuck. <laughs> we can do that. We can do that. I can you hide know, a bird. Mean, this is just dipshit stumbling around? <laughs> I can do that. And, and, and they're working six hours a day? I can work 20. Yeah. We'll bang this shit out, you know, and that is, uh, and whenever I hear someone talk about someone being a genius, I always go, that's just a lazy person. You know, you're not willing to do that. And you look at anybody, Emily Dickinson, you look at anybody, you know, we find out she hours, days, months on, you know, four lines, mm-hmm. you know, they're just banging that sh- Walt Whitman, you know, pick anybody who you have the romantic vers- vision of just, you know, and I, Mozart, I don't know. Started really early, did a lot of stuff. Now, there's no doubt that there's different abilities. You know, we know Shaq O'Neal is taller than me. Right. And we know that height isn't the only way people differ. Some people are smarter than others. You know, I, I've sat, I sat with Richard Feynman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you, you're dumb shit when you're talking to Richard Feynman. Of course. You know, we know people. But that, that, that magic thing, that genius just does it. I've never seen it. I mean, I've sat with Gilbert Gottfried making up stuff, the funniest man I've ever heard. And some of the moments are just incredible. But he's also banging it out, grinding it out. So I think that that, uh, that's just a really dangerous, dangerous, stupid word, I think. Yeah, and it's also dangerous to think that, I don't know. Well, yeah, just no one gets it because it's like, well, maybe that's the case. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe no one gets you. But I guess it depends on what you want. But if you do want, if you, if you know, if you want to get good at anything, there's no secret behind putting in the hours. <laughs> and you've also got to uh, remember, you know, there's, there's always this kind of argument that I, I used to have all the time of whether you please yourself or please the audience. And the answer comes down to it is 100%. You have to please yourself 100% and the audience 100%. And if either one is compromised, it's not good. It just right. doesn't feel right. That's an interesting way to find I haven't thought about it that way. Uh, but you also have to be very careful that you have labeled who your audience is. Right. <laughs> right, right, It does right. not mean that you can go out and do, you know, you, 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 you can't do, you know, they have to be speaking the same language you are. That's right. You have to be there for the same reason. You right. can't do, you know, you're not going to be able to do a string quartet in a punk club. Right. You know, that way the audience isn't right. Unless you thrash the viola <laughs> at the end. <laughs> I actually heard um, at the Double Down in um, in uh, Vegas, which is a really, really down and dirty um, uh, punk club. Yeah. Uh, I once heard a punk band doing Take Vive by Dave Brubeck. That's hilarious. Head slamming and Five more time. <laughs> and that's really hard. That is very hard. It was great. It was really great. I also heard perhaps the um, the greatest sentence I ever heard said to me. One of our crew guys backstage, I was waiting to go on, said, uh, "Hey, Penn, do you know that Anton Lavey's granddaughter dances topless to a surf band at the Double Down?" <laughs> 
Wow. And guess what? It's true. True. Wow. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, that reminds me. That that, it's the word surf. Surf. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, surf. yeah, surf. Well, that's a very specific. <laughs> that's a very specific subgenre. That's the, that's the double down. If you like my show, and I so hope you do, you're going to love Offbeat with Ricky Anderson and Mir Harris on Podcast One, also known as Podcast Stone. Join the head of A&R for the Kanye West-founded label good music and the music executive term activist as they sit down for strange stories and offbeat conversations some of the biggest names in music comedy entertainment and more download new episodes of offbeat with ricky anderson and mir harris every week on podcast one also known as podcast every car comes with a share of stories that ding in your bumper that you when you nervously picked up that first date remember that the uh, luxury package you got after the big promotion, or the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer. Well, you can't put a price tag on the stories now with True Car. You can at least find out what your car's worth when it's time to sell it or trade it in. Just go to True Car, simply enter your license plate number, and watch how your car's details pop up. Then answer a few questions. Navigation and moonroof? Watch as that bumps up the value. High mileage? Well, you already knew that was going to cost you, but now you know just how much it dings your wallet so you can plan ahead. Once you've finished, you'll get a true cash offer sent in minutes, which you can take to your local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. True cash offer, not available in all areas. You know, you've just reminded me that, uh, I mean, I don't spend a lot of time in Vegas, but... And that's a flaw I understand. that you've accepted. <laughs> but first of all, I want to come see your show again. And second of all, my wife and I caught wind that there's a zombie burlesque show yes, there is. somewhere in Vegas. That and it's supposed to be pretty okay. That seems like it might be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's... Name things, name things you like more... Than breasts and zombies. I mean, for me, it's actually about the zombies. <laughs> what, what more do you want? Ice cream? Ice cream is great. <laughs> ice cream is great. Yeah, see, I'm vegan now. Oh. So I'm no longer ice cream. ice cream. You can have vegan yes, there ice is. Cream. It, it, very coconutty. Is, <laughs> that uh, sounds like dis- uh, Is that New England disapproval? Uh, I'll tell you. Uh, I, uh, before I was a vegan, I disliked coconut. But if you're going to be vegan... And you're going to occasionally have a splurge. You must make peace with coconut. You better fucking like coconut. You must make peace with coconut. (laughs) And I have made peace with coconut. Not the kind, still not the candy kind. See, I think this is what happened. One Christmas, Mm -hmm. I wanted uh, a lot of Mounds bars for Christmas. And my parents um, uh, gave that to me. Mm -hmm. They gave me a large stocking, you know, Symbolic stocking, not actually a stocking you'd wear. Of course. Large red with glitter on it that said pan across it. Like you have, yeah. Yeah, well, you wouldn't have one that said pan across it. That would be really creepy. Weirdly, we do. <laughs> yeah, it's just like we keep, we keep a stocking for you at our house. And they filled it with Mounds bars. And was your dad like, and you're not coming out of there until you finish every last one of them? Well, no, but <laughs> yes. Um, it, there was no parental pressure, but I did eat uh, many more Mounds bars than I should have. And that, that kind of did it I vomited a very large amount of um, processed uh, coconut-flavored plastic, I suppose, yep. what it is. I don't yep. think there's any real coconut <laughs> in a Mounds bar. <laughs> and uh, from then on, my, uh, my, my feeling about uh, coconut was not, was not positive. Well, at the time, you never realized that you would have a completely plant-based diet. I didn't. I didn't. So, so I didn't know you that. Didn't, you didn't know. I didn't know that my love of coconut had to be cultivated. And, and, you, and you, do you feel good? You look good? You feel like more I, energy? I feel fabulous. And there's this weird thing that happens, man. Oh, geez. When I wrote my book about losing the over 100 pounds. I write in it that I am an unethical vegan. Okay. That I, it's not for animal purposes at all. This weird thing happens. Like nobody, I mean nobody, feels good about factory farming. Mm -hmm. There's no one that goes, boy, I just love where my bacon comes from. Right. No one likes it. But you make all these excuses and you stop eating animal products for like, Six months or eight months. It may be the microbiome sending signals to your head. It could actually be something physical. But certainly... In the bacon, man! Exactly. Certainly, there is a uh, the muscles that um, resolve your cognitive dissonance to, to be able to eat things that are tortured. Mm-hmm. 
get weak. And all of a sudden you start going, oh, geez, I, maybe I'm also a vegan for other reasons, too. Oh wow! Kind of comes in. So I, I, I I'm gonna, I'm gonna, if, if, if you allow me, please. Oh my gosh! What's that? That's a belt that isn't leather. <laughs> oh, it's, oh, it's a canvas belt. It's a canvas belt. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, nice. So uh, even that's going away. Even that's going away. I don't, uh, I don't wear a leather motorcycle jacket. You know, I, uh, I still have some leather uh, clothing, like on the suspenders. And you the still shirt. do the goat sacrifice as the climax of your act, right? Uh, yes, but we have sex with them first. <laughs> okay. <good. laughs> so it's a, it's a, there's a sweetness to it, and then we also can bring That's in. It's called making love. You're making making love. And then we bring in the puritanical hate. If the goat has an orgasm, and then use that to kill it for that reason, I, so it's a punishment thing. There's yeah. a, there's a, uh, there's a justice. Justice matters. Justice matters. That's a yes and with a capital A and D. Yeah. That is a, a yes fucking and. And I'm gonna slam the door shut. I'm gonna yes and. I'm gonna board this up and I'm gonna salt the earth so no other jokes can live here. All you ever do in improv is you say to somebody, "I'm now gonna." Hit you in the face as hard as I can. Is that okay? Oh yeah, combat improv. <laughs> and you know, you get it on tape. We had to comp- I had to complete okay. Uh, you're not supposed to say no. No, no I, I'm not kidding. I'm gonna hit you in the face really hard. <laughs> yes. Someone's and, oh god damn it. Yes, and I will try to run away. No, no, no. <laughs> no, you can't say yes, I can't. Well, I heard Ben. I heard him say on a podcast, like some a friend of mine heard that a friend of his heard that Penn Gillette said they definitely have sex with goats in the climax of their show, and then that ultimately kills the goat. It's crazy. I don't know how. Yeah, that's what actually. Happens. I think having sex with a goat doesn't kill it. No, having sex with the chicken does. Oh, well, this is a, a day of learning. I'm so glad to know this. I'm not sure it's always across the board. You probably well, could kill. I'm glad you told me that because of my five o'clock <laughs> was. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, and there's a, there was a great article in The Times uh, a few weeks ago that when um, future paleontologists, which I guess is not the right word, but when people, you know, hundred thousand years from now, whatever sort of thing is looking at us, they will see, or maybe I'm talking about a million, they will see this period as the time of the chicken because the the life force that is most grown over this past time is chickens. Oh my gosh. Because uh, uh, human beings have genetically modified the chicken so greatly and had so many of them that we look at this period in the strata in the uh, in the in So the, we're in the chicken age. We're in the chicken age. The neo chicken age would be coming after. And uh, we're in meso chicken now. I think you know, we're we in have, We've created these things. You know, this is I would have gone into the sciences had it not been for my lack of intelligence, one <laughs> and two, a teacher who didn't answer a question that was burning in me as a junior high student. Which I raised my hand and said, where are the wild cows and chickens? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Boy, that question bothered me. And I couldn't find an answer to it. They were just going, oh, there's always been. Well, there haven't always been chickens. And there haven't always been cows. We created them with genetic modifications. And you, you know the experiment they're doing with dogs in Russia? No. Oh, you're going to love this. Oh, am I? <laughs> yeah, you are. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy people. Which is important. Yeah. Starting in like the 40s, wanted to see how quickly they could make dogs. From out of, just out, invent dogs <laughs> out of scratch? So they took wolves, right? Mm-hmm. And they brought them in. And this, this research ends up being illegal for some reason. Right. They bring wolves in, and then they allow the wolves that seem a little friendlier toward them to breed mm-hmm. and they let the other ones go they get they get the wolves get married one gets a job <laughs> yeah. you know they, and they just uh they just kept doing that. i mean doing this since the 40s and they're still doing it and they have got in a very few generations i mean that's what you know uh 80 70 years right they have gotten the dog their their ears have gotten floppier right their faces have flattened out They've gotten all the stuff that we associate with dogs and not with wolves. 
Wow. By just picking the friendly ones. Wow. That's all they're doing is picking the friendly ones and letting them breed. And we've made such changes to my children, and it's not me because I don't like living with things in my house mm-hmm. that live. My children love dogs. So we have got a dog. And my relationship with this dog is um, cordial. <laughs> we try to be polite to one another, Mr. but there is, there's no affection. Ben? There's no affection. What's your dog's name? My our dog's name is Tater. His okay. full name is Potato Fuckhead Gillette. And I insisted <laughs> with the children that his middle name be Fuckhead, which they didn't want because I insisted it also be in the collar. Okay. And they said, Dad, we don't want cursing on the collar. And I said, the show bullshit puts you in private school. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, Fuckhead goes on the collar. Um, <laughs> you're going to that fancy math school, good. <laughs> Fuckhead. That's what put you there. I had a few rules that it had to be a standard poodle. Okay. And it had to have a continental cut so it looked very, very like Zsa Zsa Gabor would have this. I wanted the pom-poms here and there. <laughs> and um, it also had to be called, in, ref- in, uh, in uh, uh, deference to Frank Zappa, always referred to as a poodle dog. Okay. And not dog or poodle, but poodle dog. Okay. And uh, they wanted a dog so bad they went with all of those things. But this thing that lives in our house would not last in the wild 15 minutes. I mean, well, we have changed animals so maybe, much. Maybe, or this poodle would be like the DJ of wolves. Like, <laughs> fancy, figure out how to socialize. Yeah, yeah, maybe. You know, the question isn't how do you turn a wolf into a dog, it's how do you upbreed a poodle into a wolf? How many yeah. generations before you can upbreed a poodle to Just a wolf? Get a, get a mean. Yeah. But you know, D- Darwin was obsessed with uh, with with dog breeding and um, and also pigeons. Mm-hmm. You know, he was. Those things tend to be, and this is we don't even know why zebras. We can't do jack shit with zebras. They're not super cool. No, we can't find a way to breed zebras into being pleasant. Zebras are fuck you no matter what. No matter what. Yeah, they're punk. They're just fucking punk all <laughs> yep. the time. And there's all sorts of animals that we just couldn't we couldn't find. Zebras a way. are punk and they never sign with a major label. Never. You never you're never gonna have you're never gonna say zebras used to be cool. Zebras are Fugazi. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> They're still around. They will kick you. They working. will bite you. They will shit on you. If you can even get near them. <laughs> they don't even want you no. near them. No. Because there's a, there's a herd of zebras in Central California. And, and sometimes you, their set will be a half an hour. Sometimes, sometimes they don't five, show up. Four hours. Sometimes they don't they show don't up do at all. Yeah, you know, <laughs> <so no. laughs> they are. That's totally right. Yeah. And we, there's no way to, to breed that out of them. We haven't found a way. No. And why would we? Like, what's the fucking point? I know. They've already got the punk colors. Yeah, exactly. Now, zebras, there's always the question with animals on whether they are white with black stripes or black with white stripes. Mm -hmm. Now, I believe zebras' skin match their hair, which is crazy. If you shave a zebra... Give me a call. But if you, sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's my six o'clock. <laughs> but yeah. if you shave a zebra. It's going to fuck a chicken, shave a zebra. I still believe they have the stripes. Oh. but That's just the hair. Yeah. Tiger is, uh, uh, I think they their stripes are just on the fur. Okay. And polar bears, uh, essentially their hair has no color. It's fiber optics. It's pulling in the light. Oh, I didn't know that. That's good stuff to know. That is good stuff to know when any of those animals are murdering you. But you I can mean, get an up-close I, look and I, figure I, uh, This is future pen talking to past pen. Listen, pen, you get it backwards. Um, I said there with Chris that zebra skin is the same pattern as their fur and that tiger skin isn't. It's exactly backwards. Tiger skin is the same pattern as the fur, and zebra skin is not. Zebras are all black-skinned, and the stripes are white fur on it. Tiger skin matches the fur. Okay? Okay? We're going to be back with more of Chris Hardwick uh, on Wednesday. But for now, that was Penn Sunday School.
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. everybody jason ellis here from the jason ellis show podcast reminding you that my podcast new episodes every wednesday downloadable where all podcasts are available come see my friends michael and kevin as we talk to you about what's awesome what sucks fitness fighting parenting life spin kicks lgbtq community how to defend yourself against the shock if it attacks you out of nowhere and much much more so come join us We see you. You're a colleague. You're a partner. You're a friend. You're always here to support your family and your community. Now there's a school ready to support you. National University offers tuition discounts for military spouses and free tutoring, so you get the support you need to succeed. National University, supporting the whole you. We see you. You're a colleague. You're a partner. You're a friend. You're always here to support your family and your community. Now there's a school ready to support you. National University offers tuition discounts for military spouses and free tutoring, so you get the support you need to succeed. National University, supporting the whole you. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.